From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think it just illustrates the futility of trying to say we're going to try to erase the salience of race. It can't be done. And by allowing some consideration of race in this context, the court has just, I think, suggested, well, there'll be some shifts required on the part of both students and admissions offices, but we can't make race not salient. That's Kate Shaw. She's a constitutional law professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. She's also a co-host of Strict Scrutiny, a legal podcast focused on analyzing the Supreme Court's cases and culture. The Supreme Court wrapped up its term last week with a handful of consequential decisions, including on affirmative action, free speech, and student loans. So there's a lot to unpack. What will college admissions look like without race-based affirmative action? What are the limits on laws protecting the rights of LGBTQ people? And what's the extent of executive power? I discuss all of this and more with Kate Shaw. And just as a note, I got a ton of questions from you folks about these decisions. So instead of answering them myself in our typical Q&A, I figured I'd ask the Supreme Court expert. That's coming up. Stay tuned. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Before I get to my conversation with Kate Shaw, I want to make a quick plug for the Cafe Insider membership. That's where Joyce Vance and I analyze the most consequential Supreme Court decisions, controversial cases that are likely to come before the high court in the near future, and all the latest developments in the criminal cases and investigations involving Donald Trump. These days, it feels like there is a massive legal story almost every week, and I try to cover as much as I can here on Stay Tuned, but Insider is where I'm able to go much deeper. So please consider signing up. For a limited time, we're offering a special deal. The annual membership is now 40% off for the first year. That's 40% off for the first year. To sign up, head to cafe.com slash insider and use special discount code justice. That's cafe.com slash insider and special discount code justice. Kate Shaw, welcome to the show. Preet, thanks so much for having me. It's hard to believe that we haven't had you on before, so it's long overdue and I'm, I'm very pleased in particular to have you here at the end of a very um, consequential Supreme Court term uh, to answer questions that lots of people have on their minds. We got a, a ream of questions about some of the cases that ended the term, and rather than answer them myself, I thought I would ask a smarter person. So let's let's dive right into it, because there's a lot to cover. The case that probably got the most attention at the end of the term is this pair of affirmative action cases relating to the University of North Carolina and to Harvard. Could you just broad stroke tell us 
the basis on which the court decided the case and what the decision was? Sure thing. So the plaintiff in these two cases was the same, an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, and it sued both Harvard and the University of North Carolina, basically claiming that the university's use of race in their admissions policies uh, was unlawful, unconstitutional in the case of UNC, which is a public institution and so is bound by the Constitution directly, and unlawful under a federal statute in the case of Harvard, which is, of course, a private institution. But the court has basically said that the standards are the same. So the decision didn't really treat the two uh, differently in any meaningful respect. So the argument was these universities, you know, by their own account, do take race into account in their admissions decisions and that the Constitution takes off the table the ability of institutions to be mindful of race, whatever the reasons that are offered. Essentially, that's a bit of a simplification, but that is the basic argument that the plaintiffs made and that was largely embraced by a 6-3 majority of this court. And the background here is, you know, if I can maybe lay a little bit of groundwork, is that the court previously had allowed the use of race in admissions. And so, you know, in a case from the 1970s and then a case 20 years ago from 2003, the court basically looked skeptically at universities' use of race. Race, um, but in an important concurring opinion from the Baki case from 1978, and then actually in the majority opinion by Justice O'Connor in the 2003 Grutter case, the Supreme Court held that while any use of race is subject to strict scrutiny, so courts will look very skeptically at any use of race whatsoever. In this instance, the reasons that universities gave for being race conscious and making admissions decisions were powerful enough and the mechanisms that were devised were kind of tailored enough that that searching constitutional scrutiny was satisfied. And so under these narrow circumstances where universities were seeking to achieve diversity in their classrooms and where they took an individualized look at each student, didn't accord points on the basis of race, didn't use quotas that were racial in nature, under those circumstances, it was permissible for the universities to do what Michigan was doing in that case. And here the Supreme Court basically says, without saying it's overruling those cases, it essentially repudiates the reasoning in those cases and says, even though the universities here were doing things that were not radically different from what the court approved 20 years ago, the Constitution did not permit them. And so these race-conscious admissions policies were invalidated. So this is the question that people have. What has changed since 1978 or since 2003, other than the personnel of the court? Anything? There's been a legal effort underway for decades that has sought to basically get the court to declare that the Constitution is race-blind and cannot permit the taking account of race for any reason, no matter how compelling, or for very, very few reasons. And until today, the court had basically said that not all uses of race are constitutionally identical. So it is not the same thing to take account of race in order to advance white supremacy as it is to take account of race in order to, to build a diverse classroom and to produce a diverse workforce and to expose students to a wide range of ideas from individuals from a wide range of backgrounds and that race is part of, although not in any way all of that project. Um, and the court basically here said was, no matter how well-intentioned these programs are, the Constitution does not permit them. And it's really hard to see what has changed apart from just there are the votes to do it at this point. Some of the conservative justices love to talk about the history and tradition uh, of the Constitution. Is there a history and tradition with respect to our Constitution of race neutrality? It very much depends on which of the opinions in this case you read, Breed. So Justice Thomas writes a concurring opinion. And interestingly, he, he also delivered that concurring opinion from the bench. So it's pretty unusual 
typically, you know, before the pandemic and now they've resumed, the justices, you know, issue their written opinions, but also they take the bench and the author of the majority opinion reads a summary and sometimes a dissenting justice, if they feel really, really strongly, will read or summarize their dissent from the bench. Very rarely does anybody concur from the bench, but Justice Thomas clearly felt strongly about this case, uh, and he concurred from the bench, and I wasn't in the courtroom, and we don't have the audio of that, but certainly from the written opinion, it's pretty clear. He makes a historical case that the 14th Amendment and the statutes Congress passed in the wake of the passage of that amendment really was always meant to be read as race-blind, to prohibit the taking account of race for whatever reason and under whatever circumstances. And you have, I think, very powerful historical counter-narratives offered in the two separate dissenting opinions by Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, Justice Jackson, I think in particular, really, really goes deep in the Reconstruction era history. And uh, they both do, but they really make the case that from the drafting of the 14th Amendment and to the immediate kind of implementation of that equality imperative in that amendment, it's always been the case that government has understood that the way to actually bring about meaningful substantive equality is to take account of race under some circumstances, right? It is not sufficient to simply say we won't allow consideration of race and imagine that equality will kind of flower, like active efforts are required and they were required in the post Civil War Reconstruction period, and obviously not the same measures, but on the view of the dissenting justices, some consideration of race remains imperative to actually make equality meaningful. And so, but you have unbelievably contrasting kind of versions of the historical account and also visions of the Constitution and its equality guarantees that are on display in these competing opinions in the in the affirmative action cases. Is it fair to say that whether you're a conservative or a progressive, that the ideal is that at some point race-conscious or race-based decision-making in college admissions should end. I mean, one of the justices here said, you know, this practice must end. And on the one hand, the conservatives think that it should end now. And arguably some of the progressives think, based on what's still literally going on in our country and in our society, it's too soon. But is it fair to say that everyone is in agreement that in an ideal world, at some point, this practice would end? You know, I don't know. I, I think in, in, at some point in an ideal world, absolutely. Um, but race is so salient in our lives that it's hard to know what that endpoint will be. And if it ever is the case that that race does not meaningfully constrain and shape our lived experiences and our outcomes, then yeah, like admissions doesn't need to take account of race. But um, it, I think, feels to the dissenting justices and to a lot of progressives as though we are just radically far from that point. And so, you know, the, the conservative justices obviously suggest, and this is core to the reasoning in terms of what is wrong with the taking account of race. It is first the kind of dividing people up on the basis of race just is fundamentally constitutionally offensive, according to the majority. Um, but there are other, you know, specific objections they raise. And one is this lack of endpoint. Um, but, you know, what Justice Jackson says in dissent, you know, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And so for as long as it's meaningfully meaningful in life, it, you know, it, it's hard to know what that endpoint would be. But in an, in a realm of pure abstraction, I think, pretty, yeah, absolutely. We had uh, Lee Bollinger, one of the named parties in one of those cases that you mentioned, former president of Columbia University on the show. And he addressed the issue of whether or not strategically over time it would have made more sense to make these arguments on behalf of affirmative action practices, to make them based on the notion of redress mm -hmm. as opposed to the concept of diversity. Do you have a thought on that? 
I totally agree. I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, um, and I think Justice Jackson, uh, to return to her dissent, feels like she is trying to begin to lay the groundwork for reviving those arguments because it's true. So, you know, in the Michigan case, which obviously Bleep knows very well, um, uh, because, right, he was the named defendant, Grutter versus Bollinger, um, was the 2003 case we were just talking about out of Michigan. And there, the court basically limited the rationales that could sustain race-conscious, you know, admissions policies to the pursuit of classroom diversity. And previously, any kind of race-conscious policies, whether we're talking about, you know, government contracting or admissions or, um, you know, access to broadcast licenses on the airwaves. Like there are a lot of different state, local, and federal government programs that over the decades have taken account of race in some fashion. And historically, you sort of had two separate justifications. One was the kind of diversity justification, and that's whether it's in a classroom or, you know, diversity of voices on the airwaves and, and, and things like that. And the other was remedial, right? It was kind of responsiveness to a history of systemic and structural racism, um, kind of mandated some affirmative steps to kind of ameliorate, to bring about something different today, to ameliorate those past wrongs, at least in part. And in the affirmative action cases, the kind of remedial justification has totally fallen away in favor exclusively of the diversity rationale. And you see Justice Jackson's dissent, you know, steeped in history and making the case both in historical terms, but also in terms of kind of present disparities. Like she really focuses on the enormous and enduring race-based gaps in like wealth, in health, in well-being. Um, and she does really, I think, make an incredibly compelling case for how central the law and also the Supreme Court were in maintaining those and are in maintaining those structural disparities. So she's focused on the present, um, but she does suggest that sort of this kind of history of discrimination and exclusion compounds over time in ways that, you know, we feel the effects of in, in many, many ways today. And so addressing those past wrongs and making things better in current contexts are, are not really separate projects, but in the majority opinions, again, both in Grutter um, and here, kind of, and as these cases were litigated, the diversity rationale is essentially the sole basis on which the universities and kind of the arguments in defense of the policies uh, rested. And so I, I think that if one can imagine a different court, a court with a different understanding of the Constitution's equality guarantees, um, it does make sense. And I think she's, you know, sort of thinking long term and, and really laying the groundwork for beginning to offer, again, those arguments that are mostly remedial in nature. Right. So here's a question that I hope you can explain to our listeners. If diversity is not an important enough value or ideal to overcome the conservatives' problem with race-based admissions and affirmative action, why is it that they made an exception or left aside affirmative action in the military academies like the Naval Academy and West Point? Well, so I will say they don't affirmatively bless it, right? So a footnote in the majority opinion just says we're not addressing the question of, you know, race-conscious admissions. But they could have. They could have addressed it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that the, the court, the logic the court would offer is when we're talking about military policy, the court has always been somewhat more deferential to the federal government, right, and, you know, both the executive branch and Congress than in other contexts. So the court might differently approach. They don't really defer to the by, FDA. <laughs> <laughs> not this court. Um, no. And not, no. And so, right, I think it's right. They defer, they, they sort of treat federal government actions very differently, kind of depending on what the action is and depending on what the... And, and the argument that, made by the military here is what? Well, and this was really central to the, to the 2003 Michigan case, which was the military academies are, you know, where sort of officer leadership corps gets trained. And we have an incredibly diverse 
fighting force in our military. And so it's really, really important that we also have diverse military leadership from the perspective of values like, you know, military readiness and effectiveness. So you just cannot have a non-diverse officer corps effectively lead a diverse military, right? That was the argument offered in a really you know, influential amicus brief in the 2003 case. And that argument was revived here. Um, and so I think the court might, if asked this question directly, might say something like, Strict scrutiny applies, and under these narrow circumstances where we have the commander-in-chief and military leadership telling us that military readiness requires this extraordinary practice, we will permit it. We judges are not going to second-guess it. Of course, they're you know second-guessing all kinds of things all the time, but I imagine that's how they would draw the distinction between uh, this case and that one. Although, you know, Justice Jackson, I think, really, you know, takes— it takes aim at the majority by basically suggesting she doesn't really develop this argument, but she says the the, the majority basically seems more comfortable with race consciousness when we're talking about um, you know preparing folks to, to to fight and die than sort of leadership positions in the boardroom. And um, and I think she thinks that profoundly cynical. Isn't that internally inconsistent, or are we overstressing this? No, I think it's wildly internally inconsistent. I'm just trying to generate the best defense of it that I that that I could, and I think it just does have to do with deference to kind of military decisions on the part, particularly of the executive branch. Right. So th- there's a lot of talk and a lot of questions about what students can and cannot do and say in their applications, and what admissions officials can and cannot rely on. And there's this this long sequence in the court's opinion about essays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just my my third kid uh, is going to college in the fall. So I've gone through three rounds of college admissions and in particular the essay. Could you explain to folks what Chief Justice Roberts said about what an applicant can say about race and what a school can take into account? Sure. And it's a passage in the opinion that honestly is pretty hard to square with the rest of the opinion. So what the court writes, maybe I'll just quote this language, is nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And then the court goes on to elaborate that a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. So, you know, a a couple of responses. One is that's what the schools have always said they are doing, right? They're not just awarding points. They are trying to take account of a full person and race is a part of that. Um, So the language is in such contrast to the kind of sharp condemnation of the consideration of race at all in the rest of the opinion. Um, And I don't know if, you know, there are concerns that saying you can't even talk about race in your you know, application would actually raise kind of speech concerns on, you know, the student's part. Um, But it also seems to clearly kind of give the game away, right? Because obviously race does affect our lived experiences and requiring a student or an applicant to spell that out so that admissions officers can properly take account of it or making assumptions or inferences about it, you know, being a different lived experience, right, to be an 18-year-old who is black or Latino from an 18-year-old who is white. And of course, everyone is differently positioned. But the court is basically just saying there may be inferences that admissions officers are drawing, and they shouldn't draw those. Instead, they should require the students to spell them out. But maybe they can do the same thing they've been doing if they just require this additional interim step that'd be very labor-intensive. And also, I think, would create people, I think, in the wake of the decision have noted all kinds of perverse incentives, you know, essentially creating incentives for students to 
center race in their narratives where they might want to center other experiences or other aspects of their lives or identities. Right. And and causing, you know, black applicants to have to explain to admissions officers the issue of race and the issue of discrimination. It, it, it's a bit of a burden shift, is it not? It, it does seem that way. I mean, there was a great essay in the Times um, by a professor at Bates who had you know worked in kind of advising students applying to college before uh, becoming an academic. And he used the phrase kind of gamification, like racial gamification, right? Like trying to figure out in the application process just how to present yourself in racial terms. And this is something he said he had observed obviously well before this opinion, but it does seem as though this opinion will only just kind of really ratchet up those incentives on the part of applicants. And I think it just illustrates the futility of trying to say we're going to try to erase the salience of race. It can't be done. Um, And by allowing some consideration of race in this context, the court has just, I think, suggested, well, there'll be some shifts required on the part of both students and admissions offices, um, but we can't make race not salient because the court, whatever great power it does have, it has a ton of power, it does not have the power to do that. Uh, we have a question from a listener, which is a good question, from Twitter user Alyssa Davis, who says, in the affirmative action cases, there's been a lot of discussion about what students can and can't mention in their essays, as you and I are just were just discussing. Was there anything in the decision that might limit what people writing references can mention? Hashtag ask Preet. In other words, I guess the question is, can other people as well, teachers and coaches and others, talk about race and how the particular applicant overcame discrimination or racism as well? There's certainly nothing in the opinion that would preclude recommenders doing that. And I think it's probably right that just as students are going to you know, be incentivized to do more of that in their essays, I think that recommenders probably, you know, reading this opinion are going to correctly understand that they should also center that in their narratives narratives about students. Because, you know, the court is not in kind of one fell swoop going to make universities not care about diverse classrooms. Like, that's not possible. Um, And so I do think that it's going to be a question of workarounds on both the application and the admission side. Um, And this passage that I just quoted from, I think it's right. It probably will be read and, you know, correctly read by recommenders to, you know, suggest there might be some benefit to students to sort of talking about race and obstacles in a way they might not have prior to this opinion. I read somewhere that Charles Barkley, perhaps among others, has decided when he dies, he doesn't want to do it now for some reason, that he's going to fund scholarships for black students at a college. Anything in the opinion preclude that? So he's a private individual, um, and he's not a recipient of, you know, federal funds. That's the federal statute that brought Harvard within this non-discrimination a prohibition of federal law, and he's obviously not bound directly by the Constitution. Um, so as I sit here, I think that he could absolutely do that. So private individuals can do those sorts of things, um, you know, without this opinion. But can it be administered by a public school? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to, I mean, look, he could set up a foundation. He could have students apply directly, depending on what kind of, you know, legal constraints the foundation operates under. The same, you know, kind of the same statutory prohibition that Harvard or similar ones we're talking about, you know, state foundation. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the administration side of it, like, could trigger legal obligations of non-discrimination that would bring the logic of this opinion into play. But so long as you try to, to keep, you know, totally off books operation just to, to, to provide direct funding to families yeah. um, would be fine. I saw a story recently after the decision came down about the University of California at Davis Medical School. Mm-hmm. 
And as, as people may know, the University of California system got rid of race-based admissions many years ago. And in some schools, there's been a diversity issue. According to the article, UC Davis Medical School uses an adversity index, and they have quite a diverse racially and otherwise student body. Do you have any thoughts about their mechanism, if you're familiar with it, and how schools might emulate it? Well, and Davis is the school that was the, the you know the defendant in the Baki case we were talking about earlier. Um, so this is something they've been grappling with. You know, many all schools pretty much have been for decades. Um, an adversity index is interesting, and there are lots of other ways that schools could try to achieve diversity without explicitly taking race into account. Obviously, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, family income, geography, zip code. We're you know a pretty residentially segregated nation still, so those things can help. Um, so you're talking about Davis, but also. Texas has long used this top 10% plan. So the top 10% of graduates at high schools in Texas are automatically admitted to the you know, state's universities. And so um, has achieved some racial diversity that way. Like It wasn't enough in the views of Texas. And so it was using some additional racial considerations for the spots that remained. And that was the issue um, in actually two other affirmative action cases before the court, which we haven't talked about, the Fisher cases. But I think that those will be hugely important in the post you know, students for fair admissions era. What's a little hard to know from the opinion is if those might be vulnerable too. I mean, there are some kind of ominous suggestions, just kind of asides, definitely dicta, but that seem to suggest that where universities adopt policies, maybe like Davis's, you know, as attempts to kind of work around or circumvent a prohibition on consideration of race, those too might be constitutionally suspect. The court does not hold that. And I don't think that these programs should, you know, trim their sails now in anticipation of what a court might do. But I think there is language in the opinion that is suggestive that if what you're really trying to do, and, you know, you've been explicit about this, is to achieve racial diversity, but you're doing it even in a race-blind way, that might still run afoul of the logic of this opinion. And actually, I think in terms of, you know, what this opinion will mean in practice, I think the kind of sort of public response and reaction is going to shape that. I think that, you know, affirmative action, you know, is, depends obviously how you kind of phrase the question, but it's not super popular. Um, so I don't I don't know exactly how the public responds to this opinion. Obviously, universities are really, really unhappy about it, but I haven't seen polling yet, and maybe we will. And sort of what public response looks like, um, I think may have some bearing uh, on the court's kind of willingness to take this, I think, incredibly aggressive next step, which would be to declare you know, any program that uses anything as a proxy for race or that uses something non, you know, race blind to achieve diversity is also impermissible. And that I think would be truly radical. I mean, this opinion is quite radical, I think, on its own, but that would be even more radical. Right. And that will be litigated for sure, right? Well, there's a case out of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High School that was just decided by the federal appeals court. And I think the Supreme Court very likely uh, will, you know, I, I don't know if they'll take it right away, but I think there's a decent chance that could be before the court, like in the next year or two. And so um, that's another, you know, facially race neutral but definitely race-conscious admissions policy, and the court might have a chance to answer that question soon. So another very common question that I've been getting from listeners is, what does this affirmative action decision or pair of decisions mean for private workplaces or even government workplaces who are seeking to have diverse workforces? I, You know, I, I think it raises a question. <laughs> there are tons of policies, right, in the both private and public sector. Um, but, to, but just to be clear for folks who are, who are lay people, the opinion itself doesn't address those issues. So private and public employers don't have to change their hiring practices at this moment. But there could be implications in future litigation. Is that what you're saying? I think that's exactly right. I think that nothing outside of the 
college admissions sort of world is directly implicated and certainly isn't directly invalidated by anything in the court's opinion. The opinion is really just about college admissions. But every other you know, kind of use of race, if we're talking about high school admissions, if we're talking about workplaces, you know, I think there is the possibility that the logic in this opinion will embolden challenges to other uses of race in other maybe pretty far-flung contexts. And workplaces may be able to justify using a broader set of reasons than just this kind of classroom diversity rationale that the court found so lacking in the Students for Fair Admissions, um, some of the other problems that the court identified, you know, that the use of race also ended up being used negatively, in particular to impact, in the court's view, Asian American applicants who the court read the statistical record as basically establishing that Asian American students were systematically disadvantaged by the university's use of race to advantage primarily Black and Latino students. Um, and so to the extent that those features are absent from, say, a workplace or other context, those could be very salient distinctions between what the court found so troubling here and other uses of race. But I think I think it would be misguided to basically assume that if you're talking about a different context, the use of race is completely insulated from challenge because this case was just about college admissions. I think it has really broad implications. I'll be right back with my conversation with Kate Shaw. Support for this episode of Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. A huge monthly cell phone bill might feel inevitable. We've all gotten used to climbing rates, surprising surcharges, and expensive plans. And most of us shrug and assume that we're stuck and there's no other option. So we just pay. But what if there was another option? An option that was much more affordable? Allow me to introduce you to Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All Mint Mobile plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can make the switch and keep the phone and number you have right now, along with all of your existing contacts. You can get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month by going to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic, New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. All right, let's move on to, to another case. We could talk about the affirmative action cases for a very long time. So one of the most fraught cases decided by the court at the end, politically at least, for the current president was the student loan case. Mm -hmm. And a question that I keep getting, and this is relevant to actually all the cases we're going to discuss, but a Twitter user by the name of Ultimate Web asks, how was their standing for the student loan case? I'm going to ask you the same question when we get to the web designer. But here, who's the plaintiff and why do they have standing to challenge 
the massive cancellation of, of student loan debt. There were two sets of plaintiffs, a couple of individual plaintiffs who were unhappy with the amount of debt they were eligible for, and the court dismissed their case on standing grounds. So those two individual plaintiffs were not found to have standing. Um, but the other group of plaintiffs was a group of red states that brought this challenge. Um, the case was captioned Nebraska, um, but actually Missouri ended up being the most important of the states. Um, and they had a couple of different arguments for how they were injured by this policy, but the one that was kind of central to the court's reasoning or the court's conclusion that Missouri did have standing was because an entity called Mohila, which was the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, just like this, you know, legal and financial entity that was set up by the state of Missouri, but is independent from the state of Missouri, that it was injured by the debt cancellation. Because it is basically, Missouri was basically arguing that if the federal government cancels some student debt, then some debt holders will consolidate some of their outstanding debts, some of which are held or serviced by Mohila. And if those other debts serviced by Mohila and also, you know, the debts that are forgiven altogether will basically cause Mohila to make less money servicing these loans. Um, and so that's the injury. So that's Mohila. If Mohila makes less money, it'll like contribute less money to this state fund that was kind of central to the case. So it's like a standing theory that has a bunch of different steps in the chain of causation. There's also the fact, and this was really, really central to Justice Kagan's dissent, which maybe we could talk about, was that Mohila is not Missouri. It really is an independent entity. And the chief justice in the majority opinion says, eh, you know, it's a state-ish, <laughs> like it's state enough that its injury is injury to the state, and thus the state can go forward. But in the oral argument, this came up a lot. And again, in Kagan's dissent, this came up a lot. Mohila, the entity, was not a party to the suit. It chose not to bring a lawsuit. A public records request revealed some Mohila employees sort of talking about how the state is trying to bring them into the case, um, which, you know, isn't dispositive on the question of standing, but I think does suggest that Mohila was being used by Missouri. Um, and I think the claim that their injury, first, that they're injured at all, it's not even clear that they are, but even if they are, that their injury is injury to the state, I think is a very, very dubious one. But that is the basis on which the court concluded there was standing and thus it could reach the merits of the lawfulness of this debt cancellation. Putting standing issues aside for a moment, the case turned on what's called the HEROES Act. So this is not about the Constitution. It's about the interpretation of a statute. And the HEROES Act, as the court points out, allows the secretary to, quote, waive or modify, end quote, statutory or regulatory provisions applicable to financial assistance programs under the Education Act. And so the question was, I guess, and tell me if I have this right, was the wholesale cancellation of debt a waiver or modification or something else? Yeah, that's exactly right. Let me just read one more sentence, though, from the statute, which is, so, you know, the secretary has the authority to waive or modify. Um, and then the end of that provision says, as the secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. Um, and does seem to me that, you know, the COVID context was the context in which the decision was made. And the secretary took the position, hard to refute, that that was a national emergency. So, yes, it is basically the case that the argument the states made that the court accepted was that this statutory language, particularly waive or modify, just doesn't encompass this kind of wholesale cancellation, which is what the Biden administration engaged in. And remember, the context here is that there were a number of loan repayment pauses in response to the early COVID pandemic, actually first by the Trump administration and the Trump education secretary, and then by the Biden administration. Now, and was then, that blessed? Was that okay? Were the pauses okay? <laughs> I mean, the court doesn't address them explicitly, but, you know, on the logic, I'm not sure even the pauses were okay, but maybe it's the fact that 
you know, they were temporary that the court would say, you know, brought them sort of within the purview of this kind of wave or modify language. But, you know, about a year ago, August 2022, the Biden administration basically said, look, we're ending these across the board pauses, but we're going to provide permanent relief to, you know, a subset of borrowers whose income falls below a certain threshold. And it offered this really detailed explanation for why, which is that, you know, there were still ongoing economic effects of the pandemic on affected borrowers and offered all kinds of evidence in support of that conclusion. And so it said we're, you know, canceling up to $10,000 for a lot of borrowers and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. And it didn't just do this out of thin air, right? It had a statute that it pointed to that it said is precisely designed to allow the secretary to respond to emergency scenarios, you know, in relieving the obligations of student debt. And so the what the court basically did was it imported some language from another opinion using the term modify. This is like a Scalia opinion. There's language from another uh, opinion actually by Justice Scalia that basically said, you know, the agency in question was using the term modify in an unduly expansive way. And so Scalia wrote, only, you know, this was modify only in the same sense that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility. <laughs> um, it has abolished them and supplanted them with a new regime entirely. So that's from a case called MCI, totally different case, and it's a different statute. Um, but, you know, it's a good line. So Roberts repurposes it here and basically says this goes way too far to qualify as modify. Now, wave is also in the statute, and I think the opinion really focuses on modify to the exclusion of wave, but it does talk about wave a little bit. But it says, you know, if you look at previous exercises of authority under this statute, and you look at what we really think these terms, you know, wave and modify mean, eh, it doesn't seem to us like it means wholesale cancellation of this, you know, significant sum of debt for, you know, 40 plus million borrowers. Um, and you have this really, I think, epic dissent by Justice Kagan, which is like the statute says the secretary is allowed to give relief in the form he deems appropriate to counteract the effects of a national emergency on borrowers' capacity to repay. Who knows if that's good policy? But that's not up to us. That's up to Congress. Congress wrote a statute, and that's the statute under which the education secretary was operating, kind of full stop. But the majority opinion not only sort of read the statute not to clearly allow this, but invoked this idea, it's a principle that's invoked in a bunch of cases in recent years, called the major questions doctrine, yeah. which is basically right when, you know, if an agency is seeking to do something, like take some action of vast economic and political significance, you know, it can only do that if the statutory authority on which it is relying is really, really clear, right? So Congress has to speak clearly if it wants to give agencies big, big powers. And that's just not you know, a principle that has a particularly long vintage. It really comes from this 2000 case about the FDA trying to regulate tobacco. Um, but no, it as, isn't- As we've said on the podcast before, there's no history and tradition of the major question. <laughs> it's really, it is just wildly inconsistent with history and tradition. And yet it has- just assumed this unbelievable significance in really important recent cases, right? Last term's case regarding, you know, the EPA authority to yeah. regulate coal um, emissions. And, you know, it wasn't essentially in this term's case about the Clean Water Act and wetlands. There was kind of a related principle, um, but it wasn't a major questions case. But major questions came up in a couple of really important COVID cases, right? You know, vaccine mandate and uh, OSHA, the eviction moratorium. And so this is just the latest, you know, kind of the major questions doctrine strikes again instance, but obviously with enormous consequences for millions of Americans who have, you know, all of a sudden are facing, we'll see what Biden does in response. Um, but if there's no response that is comparable, or if courts strike that down too, you know, people are gonna be on the hook for thousands of dollars that they believed until the Supreme Court opinion that they had been, you know, forgiven. It's part of what's going on here that in the minds of some people, including some of these justices, that Joe Biden had made a political promise and there was a political movement behind student debt cancellation that was totally unconnected 
to COVID. That just as a general independent freestanding matter, there are lots of people who thought as a matter of policy, the student loan should be, the student loan should be forgiven. And that in the minds of some of these justices, it looks like a pure political play and the linkage to, to COVID is pretextual. Is there any of that going on here? I think it's possible. I mean, I think that part of what is so perverse about the way the major questions doctrine has been deployed by this court is it says if an issue is one of kind of political significance, and sometimes it talks about political controversy, that is a reason to look skeptically on what an agency has done. So it sort of, you know, creates incentives to gin up political controversy around questions um, so that the court can then say like, well, this is a politically controversial question. And so we're not comfortable with allowing the agency to exercise this kind of authority. It's just, you know, so yes, I think there was like a very significant and well-organized movement underway to, you know, achieve some kind of loan forgiveness that predates COVID. Um, but I also think that the agency tied really tightly the decision here, the sums involved, the kind of category of affected borrowers to the lingering effects of the pandemic. Um, and so it's just, if this is a textualist court, which it is fond of telling us it is, like we have a piece of statutory text and it either, you know, kind of does or does not authorize what the secretary did here. It seems to me it very, very clearly does. But taking all of these background conditions that there was a movement underway um, into account, I think actually may be appropriate when you're interpreting statutes. To my mind, that's all fine. But on this court's own, you know, kind of version of, appropriate statutory interpretation theory, none of that should matter. And yet it really does matter here. Do I remember correctly that at the time Joe Biden announced loan forgiveness, there was some reporting that he and his team knew that it might be legally dubious? So they, they knew there was a risk at the outset, no? Sure. And then the opinion actually quotes Nancy Pelosi basically saying the president doesn't have the authority to, to do this unilaterally. Um, and it just, it, again, what legal significance the assessment of the Speaker of the House of the, you know, lawfulness of the president's contemplated approaches, you know, none. It just, it just, it, that felt like a totally gratuitous inclusion in the majority opinion, but it's there. So, I, you know, I think, I think that the Chief Justice really enjoyed including that. And I think that, yes, there was definitely reporting that, that a lot of the president's lawyers were very unsure. And that's in some ways why it took as long as it did. But again, right. why that should bear on the court's assessment is really unclear to me. Well, but, but it should it bear on our assessment of the court's decision that with respect to some of these other cases, like you know, the effective wholesale reversal of longstanding precedent like in Dobbs and in the affirmative action cases, this is not as crazy as those. Is that fair? I think it's quite crazy, actually. And I think that the Kagan opinion is really, really convincing. It's just that maybe viewed in isolation, I suppose it one could construct a defense of it. But, you know, it just feels like part of a kind of systematic effort to kneecap the administrative state based on just a vision of government in which it doesn't do much, right? So it's really difficult for Congress to hand broad authority to agencies to do things like respond to public health emergencies or to the climate catastrophe or other things. And that's just like the kind of deep ideological commitment of these justices. And so this is just the latest kind of demonstration of that. Um, in support of your, maybe this isn't as crazy kind of position though, pre like there were actually a couple of amicus briefs from kind of surprising quarters or like unexpected ones, at least on the side of the states, right? And that were substantively dubious about the president's authority here. So the organization Protect Democracy and some you know, pretty liberal law professors actually filed briefs on the side of the states suggesting the president had exceeded his authority here out of just kind of a you know, concern, generally speaking, about unbridled executive authority sort of just being a problem in a democracy. And like, obviously, in the abstract, that principle, I think, is correct. And I, I share it. Um, I'm just not sure here, I found it a convincing concern. But I think you're right that this, the kind of ideological divides in this case were slightly kind of fuzzier than in some of the other cases we're talking about. 
Let's move on to case three of the four that I want to focus on. And this has gotten a lot of attention. This is styled as a free speech case, 303 creative. And the most number of questions we've gotten (laughs) relates to the same issue we talked about a moment ago. Margie Lemons, for example, on Twitter asks, dig into standing for the 303 case. How on earth case got heard? Is there any remedy? Somebody else tweeted, hoping you'll address the questions about standing in 303. Could you explain to folks who the plaintiff was? and the controversy about whether or not there was in fact a controversy here. Sure. Um, So the plaintiff in this case was a would-be website designer, Lori Smith, um, who wanted to offer her services as a web designer, um, you know, for for, for purchase, um, but did not wish to design websites for same-sex weddings um, and was concerned about a state law in Colorado, a public accommodations law, which prohibits, among other things, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation um, by any business that sells things to the public. So she was concerned that that law would compel her to provide a website to a same-sex couple who approached her seeking to you know, secure her services. Um, and in anticipation of being compelled to provide such services under such circumstances, she filed this lawsuit. And if the way I describe this, you know, kind of suggests that I too am dubious that she actually should have been in federal court at all. um, Yeah. I mean, I share what I take to be some of the listener uh, skepticism about whether this was a suit that, you know, satisfied the requirements of Article 3 of the Constitution, which is supposed to limit federal courts to deciding cases or controversies. And one component of that is you're supposed to have a plaintiff who is personally injured by whatever law they're complaining about. And, you know, it, this was just kind of an anticipatory injury that the court decided to take seriously enough to actually issue this major constitutional ruling on. Right. But in but, fairness, the court does that from time to time, right? There, there is there is such a thing, just for lay people to understand, there is such a thing as pre-enforcement review and challenge. Definitely. And so that's, you know, it is it is the case that if an agency has issued a rule and you're, you know, going to argue that the rule violates your constitutional rights or is, you know, unlawful under some statute, you don't have to violate the rule and, you know, be subject to sanction in order to bring a challenge. That's right. Um, But typically the injury is supposed to be actual or imminent, like certainly impending is a formulation the court has used in a Justice Alito opinion that basically you're definitely, definitely going to be subject to the injury that you are identifying or complaining about. And here, it's just very unclear that any same-sex couple would have tried to retain her services as a website designer. It is, I think, true that if she denied services, she would be subject to enforcement by the state of Colorado. But that first piece of speculativeness, I think, actually is a real problem for the case. And you, you know, in order to kind of settle her rights or secure her rights, I mean, the language of the court is just so much kind of less definitive than in many, many standing cases in which the court has basically said, well, you know, there might be an injury here, but it's not either happening or certain enough to happen to justify our exercise of judicial review here. And so it it is hard to square this case with, I mean, well, I'm going to have to read it carefully and figure out how to teach it in my con law classes next year. But but it does feel to me like like an awfully generous approach to standing, which might actually be right under some circumstances. I mean, I think that some of the time the court has been far, far too stingy in finding standing if it doesn't want to get to the merits here. But its eagerness is impossible to miss in this case. Right. So for example, if if Alabama or some other state tomorrow passed a law saying that in that state, same-sex marriage was forbidden. And you have a couple that's not married, but plans to get married. 
do they need to get married and violate that new statute in order to challenge the statute? Well, typically the way this kind of litigation would work is you would have a couple who would apply for a license and be denied. And that's that that's the injury. So uh, it's a it's a small step, right, that 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 is taken. And um and maybe it's right that you shouldn't have to do that, but the way the court has basically articulated these standing rules and that, you know, organizations that do civil civil rights litigation, uh, et cetera, have just, you know complied with. They would they would have somebody apply for a license and be denied, and that is an injury. Um, so if you're just unhappy typically with policy, and even policy that you think might in some, you know, future set of circumstances impact you personally and directly, that's typically not enough to get to federal court. So what was deemed speech in this case? I mean, it's so the case is styled a free speech case. It's not a discrimination case. It's not a free exercise of religion case. It's not an establishment clause case. It's a free speech case. Was this speech the creation or the anticipated creation of a website for a same-sex couple? Basically, yeah. So she basically suggested that this law would compel her to speak a message she objected to. And the core, and you're right, this was a speech case. It wasn't a free exercise, right, religion case as a technical matter. But the core of her objection to speaking this message was a religiously grounded one, right? So she basically said she has a religiously grounded view that same-sex marriages are, in her words, false, and that God's true story of marriage is a union between one man and one woman. And having to design a website for a same-sex couple would compel her to speak some different version of truth, right? That this was, a, I guess, true marriage or a real marriage um, and a, a union that was legitimate, like a union between a man and a woman, and that that would be unconstitutionally compelled speech. And that's what then the court, you know, in a opinion by Justice Gorsuch, very, very resoundingly sided with this argument by Laurie Smith. Is that part of the argument, putting aside whether or not it can be overcome and the standing issues, is the consensus, even among people who disagree with the opinion's conclusion, that the web design is speech or is that controversial in your mind too? No, I think it's, a you know, whether it's pure speech or speech and also kind of commercial activity, I think it does have speech elements, right? There's a couple of places where what the 10th Circuit, the lower court here, described this uh, website, you know, design as pure speech, um, and the court recited that language. Um, But, you know, it's also something being sold, right? And it's some kind, in other places, the opinion describes it as expressive activity. So I think it's right that it has some expressive slash kind of speechy components, um, but it's also offered for sale. And to be honest, like most goods or services that are sold have or could be described as having some kind of expressive component, right? Like probably a sandwich that is pre-made. If you're going to buy, it'd be really hard for a vendor to, to deny you service on the basis that to do so would be compelled speech. But I mean, I, I truly don't know. Like if you have a same-sex couple that walks into an establishment and wants to order sandwiches and you know, the, the, the vendor objects. Right. Is, is the provision of the sandwich speech? Well, probably not. But also, but is the if the provision of the sandwich is deemed or could be characterized by the vendor as communicating support for, you know, like a lifestyle, I don't know. I think it, the there are not a lot of limiting principles in this opinion in a way that makes me really, really nervous about just the kind of general viability of public accommodations laws, which are, you know, very, very longstanding laws that, you know, since the 60s, as a matter of federal law, have prohibited discrimination 
in, you know, places of public accommodation. So that's just like, you know, anybody who offers their goods or services to the public. That does not encompass everybody, but that's the general kind of definition of public accommodations. Can't discriminate originally just on the basis of, you know, race and religion and national origin. Um, and a lot of places like Colorado have subsequently added sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination as prohibited under these public accommodation statutes. Um, but I mean, if you have a religiously grounded objection to providing websites for same-sex marriages, I'm not sure how there's any way to distinguish that from a religiously grounded objection to providing websites for uh, interracial marriages, which is, you know, explicitly highlighted in the dissent, came up, you know, a bunch in the oral argument, the idea of uh, individuals with disabilities, um, that's you know, also protected status. If you object to a marriage between one or, you know, in which one or both individuals um, has a disability, could you refuse if you claim some religious basis? Or maybe even if you don't, because again, as you said, this isn't a religion case on its face. It just feels as though these very longstanding norms that the government will never, ever be able to tell you what can be in your heart, but that if you hold yourself out to the public as providing a good or service, you need to do that to all comers on a non-discriminatory basis. Um, that principle feels like it's in real jeopardy after this opinion. Can you help explain how this case, 303 Creative, as a First Amendment case, is different from that cake shop case from a few years ago? You know, it, it's not different in the kind of general arguments that were being made. The only difference is the court resolved that Masterpiece Cake Shop case by basically arguing that it didn't kind of have to decide if this public accommodation law required the baker, Jack Phillips was the baker in that case, to provide a cake to a same-sex couple. You know, I think they had been married in another state, but they wanted to have a celebration of their marriage in Colorado. And the kind of clash that the court resolves in 303 Creative just doesn't get resolved in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case because the court basically found in the administrative proceedings, because that case, unlike this one, actually did involve a same-sex couple who walked into a cake shop and tried to order a cake and were turned away. And so there was no real standing question there, you know, really contrast with this But case. the ground on which, but the objection to providing the cake was what? You know, it was both a religion and a speech objection. It was the same. It was a religiously grounded objection to same-sex marriage that had both speech and religion components. But the court didn't ultimately resolve the question of whether Phillips had a constitutional right to review the service irrespective of this statute uh, because it found that in the administrative proceedings that ensued after this couple complained, some of the Colorado officials basically seem to voice anti-religion animus, right? Like bias against religion. They said things like religion has long justified acts of discrimination and that's not okay in our state. And the court basically said that that discrimination was impermissible, but it didn't answer like the later question of whether the refusal of the cake sale was, you know, constitutionally protected or privileged. So, you know, that with the sort of factual background there was a little bit different. The court basically used those administrative statements as an off-ramp. It found for the baker, but not on the basis that there was a you know, constitutional right to refuse the sale. It was like an earlier stage of the kind of decisional decision tree, I would say. This is something that's confusing. We, we say all the time on the podcast, and people try to explain the concept of abridgment of free speech as something that is only applicable towards the state, right? So Twitter can decide, or Facebook can decide, or NBC can decide not to air certain speech. You don't have an absolute right because those are not state actors. How is it the case that you have this free speech question but not an obvious state actor. It's just the state laws, right? So because the state of Colorado passed the public accommodations laws, those state compulsions to provide services, those would be the thing that 
violates the constitutional rights of either the baker or the web designer. So you're right, there isn't, you know, and in Colorado, in the in the first case, the cake shop case, there were actual administrative officials, you know, enforcing the law. And, and basically Phillips had to undergo some training, like there were sanctions for his refusal to sell the cake. And those are the kinds of sanctions that Lori Smith, the web designer, was, you know, concerned about when she brought this lawsuit. But so, yeah, so you do have enforcement in the first of these cases, but kind of more broadly, it is the state law, and that is, of course, the product of state action, that these would-be vendors are arguing violates their First Amendment rights. So there's a Supreme Court case called Obergefell, decided some years ago, that upheld the right to same-sex marriage. Do you think anything about this case we've been talking about, 303 Creative, suggests directly or indirectly that Obergefell is in jeopardy? I don't think anything in this case directly calls into question Obergefell, no. Um, I do think that it could be the case that, you know, you have under the Constitution a right to marry, including a right to marry someone of the same sex, but you're not going to have the same experience if you're in a state where a lot of people object to providing you you know, if, if you get married a lot of the time, if you do like a real wedding, there's like, you know, there's clothing, there's cake, there's photography, there's like floral design. There's lots of, you interact with a lot of vendors. Calligraphy, they mentioned in the opinion, uh, for like invitations and things like that. Um, so it could be the case that if this opinion emboldens a lot of people to refuse services to same-sex couples, it's not going to be the same experience as it would a different sex couple getting married. So I do think that there's impact on marriage, no question. But as to the core constitutional right to marry, I don't see anything in this opinion that calls it into question. Although, you know, I hasten to add, like last term in the Dobbs case, Justice Thomas's dissent right, explicitly included Obergefell on the list of precedents that the court should reconsider in light of the kind of new approach it is taking to fundamental rights. Um, so not only, obviously, the majority opinion just overrules Roe and Casey, and actually kind of is at pains to say that it's not calling into question other cases. Um, but that, I think, is, you know, as Justice Thomas is in many ways like a real thought leader on this court. And so a lot of his once fringe positions have moved much, much closer to the center of the court in, you know, recent years. Uh, and so I do think that, eyes wide open, I think that Obergefell could be vulnerable at some point, but I don't think that 303 Creative in any way directly calls it into question. I'll be right back with Kate Shaw after this. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better that's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 
Remember just a few days ago when, for the first time ever, a United States president got convicted of a felony? Of 34 felonies. The first thing he said was, of course, the whole trial was rigged. I'm a very innocent man. But the second thing he said was... The country's gone to hell. He was weirdly talking all of a sudden about immigration. Millions and millions of people pouring into our country right now from prisons and from mental institutions, terrorists. The next day he spoke about his guilty verdicts again. This time, immigration was the first thing he wanted to talk about. When you look at our country, what's happening where millions and millions of people are flowing in from all parts of the world, not just South America, from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East. It's an election year and the leading Republican candidate, maybe the leading candidate, period, wants to make it all about immigration. So we're going to do the same on Today Explained with two episodes this week. Come over and join us. Give them a listen. Can we take a step back for a second and talk about the entire term? More or less radical than the year before? So I'm going to give a a, a differently radical than the year before, (laughs) I guess. Um, It is still a really, really conservative court, and it has moved very quickly to change the law just this year in, you know, and also in the context of just the, you know, three years the conservative supermajority has been in place. There are some metrics on which this looks less conservative than previous years. So you had, for example, example, that voting rights case, right? Right. So you have both in kind of anecdotally. So in Allen versus Milligan, the court could have gutted, could have potentially even have struck down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The court did not do that. That was significant. Obviously, more, which we just talked about, was significant. A case called Holland versus Burkine about the Indian Child Welfare Act was viewed as an existential threat to this really important longstanding federal statute. And the court turned away, you know, two on the merits, one on standing grounds, all of these big challenge that had been brought to that statute. Um, So, you know, a case about the spending clause called Pilevsky that could have been, I think, really damaging and and was not. So there definitely were liberal victories. And um, by the numbers, the liberals were actually, when the New York Times crunched these numbers, they were on the winning side more than Thomas and Alito were. Um, And you also had this real increase in unanimous opinion. So up to 47% from 28%. But like the numbers just kind of obscure more than they illuminate and that most of the unanimous opinions were in the really low stakes cases. And in, in most of the terms, most important cases, the conservative victories were enormous, right? So obviously the Students for Fair Admissions and 303 Creative, which we were just talking about, and then you know, more is, I think, is more mixed. Um, but the, the kind of magnitude of the victories in the cases that the conservatives won gets obscured by that kind of number crunching. And so I guess I still think it's a really conservative court. All six of the court's conservatives are very, very conservative, but they do have different styles and I think different approaches they would like to take to kind of bringing about the change they want to see. And I've used this metaphor before, but I sometimes think of it as like an express train versus local train kind of distinction, which is that like Thomas and Alito are very, and Gorsuch most of the time are very much on the express train. And Roberts wants to take a sort of local train and make stops and make incremental change. And sometimes Kavanaugh is with him and sometimes Barrett is with him, but often they're on the express train. And But the destination is the same and it is really, really fundamentally transforming our law. Which train do you think? Is it the one, is it the one, two, three? Is it the NR? For, I don't have a good train. I don't, I don't, and even the express trains in New York are not that fast. So I don't, I, I guess I don't really have a good particular train in mind. But I do think that the metaphor, broadly speaking, is right. So it's just a question of how you get there. Um, and also how much you take account of things like the court's standing and approval numbers and public opinion. And I think Roberts very much cares about those things. And I think Kavanaugh might also, and I don't think the others do. 
So Roberts, since you mentioned him, there have been people, including uh, those who have appeared on the show, who in the last couple of years have started to say that Roberts doesn't really have control of the court, that he's losing influence. What do you make of his standing on the court at this moment? He does look stronger this term than last term. I think that's definitely right. I mean, he looked, I think his, you know, failed effort to craft a kind of compromise or what, you know, he would have styled as a compromise solution in Dobbs, um, I think exposed, it seemed to expose. So he, you know, concurred. He did not want to overturn Roe and Casey, but he would have upheld the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. And uh, by, you know, uh, several accounts, he was really trying to get Kavanaugh to go along with him and obviously failed to do that. I think it's, Right, that he seems to be, you know, in somewhat more control of the court right now. And I think that his decision in Allen to uphold the Voting Rights Act, in particular, John Roberts, right, who, you know, 10 years ago wrote the opinion striking down section where the coverage formula in the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder, that was significant, right? So that I think did, and I don't really have a great explanation for what has happened. And, and you know, if we thought, you know, when Alan came out a couple of weeks ago, that maybe, you know, his views on race and its salience had evolved, I think students for fair admissions, I think really uh, disabused me or anyone else who might have been harboring that suspicion of, of that idea. Um, but that's a very, that's an opinion that does seem to suggest that, you know, that race does still matter. Um, and so, and in a way that is very, very sharply kind of contrast with what he wrote 10 years ago in Shelby County. So I think that this is this is someone who maybe has seen his views evolve on, on, on some questions um, and has managed to, you know, keep for himself opinions that have kept a court and not, you know, lost a majority to some concurring opinion or something like that. Like you could have imagined, you could imagine in the Students for Fair Admissions case, he keeps the majority opinion because, of course, the chief, if he's in the majority, gets to decide who writes the opinion. So either he can assign to himself the majority opinion or he could assign it to someone else. And I just had this feeling that Justice Thomas really wanted to write that opinion, but the chief kept it. And I think maybe he wrote an opinion that was more aggressive than it would otherwise have been, but not as aggressive as Justice Thomas's concurrence in order to keep a majority with him as opposed to losing it to Justice Thomas. And, you know, if he wrote something that felt too moderate. Um, and I do believe that paragraph that we talked about, like, m there must have been a lot of negotiation over, or, over that paragraph. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that it sort of remains to be seen. This new super conservative court is, is pretty new, right? It's still kind of, I think, getting its legs. So I think long-term assessments will probably have to wait. But, it, but Roberts and Kavanaugh are obviously like the most important players on this court right now. And Kavanaugh, in many ways, he's concurred in some pretty important ways in some of these cases. So he's obviously the justice to watch on, on a lot of kind of important questions we're going to see in the next couple of terms. Are conservatives disappointed with Kavanaugh yet? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that- Is that surprising? Is it surprising? Not just Kavanaugh. I mean, Barrett and Gorsuch are disappointing conservatives. Um, the Times quoted- uh, law professor Josh Blackman, who basically said these lists are basically useless. A, a lot of conservatives think if they're not going to produce people who are as, as reliably conservative on every question as Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. It is interesting, right? They though The three Trump appointees are somewhat more moderate than Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. And I think that, you know, a future Republican president would prefer to appoint justices in the mold of Justice Thomas and Justice Alito than these newer appointees. Um, so again, I, I think the disappointment is probably the most acute with Kavanaugh, who has shown himself to have like little, you know, there's glimmers of moderation. Um, but again, Barrett wrote the opinion upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act, which a lot of conservatives had really, really hoped to take down its, in its entirety in this challenge. And, you know, Gorsuch has, in a number of other, you know, important cases involving federal Indian law, sided with 
tribal sovereignty and, and tribal interests. Um, and so I think that there are sources of disappointment, I think, for, you know, conservatives, I think, with all of these three new appointees, but probably most with Kavanaugh. Do you think the recent ethics revelations and scandals, specifically with respect to Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, are having any effect on the substance of the court's work? It's hard to know. I, you know, I mean, is, is Roberts bending over backwards to be um, a certain way in the wake of those things, or he's just doing what he otherwise would have done? I don't think anything in the opinions, I know, of course, like I read them with that front of mind. I don't think anything in the opinions this term makes me think that the court's deciding or writing cases differently based on that. But I, I have to imagine that internally Roberts is focused on trying to get the court to do something kind of affirmative on ethics that will send the message that they take this seriously. And I'm not sure sort of what that would look like, but um, because that really is on him, right? I mean, I think that you can sort of ask the question about how substantively in control the decisions of this court. He, of course, has just one vote. He has the assignment power. But apart from that, he's like, you know, first among equals, as people sometimes say about the chief justice. But when it comes to the court and its administrative kind of activities, Roberts has all the power. And so if they the court does nothing on ethics, I think that 100% sort of has to lie at the feet of John Roberts. Um, and so, and I think because he does care very much about both the institution and I think his own legacy as a chief justice, I have to imagine he's going to try to do something. I just don't think this is the kind of thing that they can just ignore and hope people will stop paying attention to. And I don't think that the reporters who are on this beat have stopped looking. And I think there probably are more shoes to drop in terms of the court's ethics scandals. Um, so I think Roberts is going to have to take some action. Well, Justice Kagan doesn't accept bagels from friends. <laughs> well, the locks anyway. A bag- I guess bagels too. Yeah. We, we, bagels, we were, I, think, we were, I think it's both bagels and locks. <laughs> we were speculating on my locks. podcast about whether the, mo- the yeah, this is Russ and Daughters. It's very good stuff. Um, we were speculating on my podcast recently about whether the recent kind of Justice Alito salmon fishing revelations have like caused Justice Kagan to, to rethink her previous kind of hard life I think position. you're always allowed to accept a pumpernickel bagel. Because <laughs> who wants but the, that? Yeah, yeah. Well, white fish bread though, I don't know. That might be across the line. <laughs> Can we spend, I know it's been a while, but there's so much to cover. A couple of minutes on what's in store for the next term. Sure. There's this case we've talked about on the podcast once or twice relating to herring fishermen. And it, it's escaped the kind of attention that the affirmative action cases and student loan cases and free speech cases get. But could you explain why that is a gigantic deal? Sure. So this is a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo. Um, and I guess something to do with like monitor on a fishing boat, a question that a statute is arguably ambiguous on. And the key question is an institutional one, right? If a statute is ambiguous, does an agency get to construe that ambiguous statute? And should a court just defer to the agency's interpretation of that ambiguous statute? Or really, is it for the court to decide what a statute means? And since 1984, uh, in an important case called Chevron versus NRDC, the Supreme Court has said that where a statute is ambiguous and where an agency that administers the statute has offered you know, a reasonable interpretation of that statute, courts are supposed to defer to statutes. And I mean, there are just, you know, there are thousands and thousands of ambiguous terms and statutes, and agencies have to kind of decide how to interpret those ambiguous provisions and interpret them in the context of, you know, things like rules that agencies write, but also in terms of how they decide when to bring and how to bring an enforcement action and who pays for various things. I mean, there's just like just absolutely infinite number of these decisions agencies have to make all the time. And sometimes an unhappy party challenges the way an agency has read a statute. And again, you know, since 1984, the Supreme Court has said courts defer to agencies. And this Chevron case has come under fire in recent years. And 
the idea is, I think this is of a piece with the ascent of the major questions doctrine, which we were just talking about, but that the major questions doctrine is about kind of courts taking power from agencies. Um, Chevron was always about courts deferring to agencies. And so the kind of attack on Chevron has been also about disempowering agencies and empowering courts. So the idea of people who don't like Chevron and, you know, it hasn't always had the same political valence, but the kind of anti-Chevron camp has been pretty well aligned with sort of what Jillian Metzger at Columbia calls like an anti-administrativist camp, which is just like keep agencies powerless or, you know, as powerless as possible. So the idea is that Chevron gives agencies too much power and then, you know, and, and courts basically need to rein agencies in by actually overruling Chevron. And in recent years, the court has kind of ignored Chevron, but not actually overruled it. And so this case is, you know, a frontal attack on Chevron. Yeah. What's the prediction? This term has been interesting because as we talked about in the affirmative action cases, the court did not do a lot of overruling, right? So the court purported just to basically find that the conditions that it set forth in Grutter, the 2003 case, weren't satisfied here. And so it doesn't formally overrule those affirmative action precedents. Uh, there's another case we didn't talk about, Groff versus DeJoy, which is about religious accommodations at work. And there was a 1977 opinion that the court was asked to overrule. And there too, it didn't overrule it, but it did really recast it. I think the court has sort of taken a lesson from the kind of backlash to its job opinion as, at least in part, maybe we'll find a way to work around precedence because when we overrule a case, then that generates like a lot of big headlines. And obviously overruling Roe is, you know, kind of in its own category. But I do think that the court seems to be really straining not to overrule precedence right now. And I think that that could happen here. But the court, I think, very clearly right. will do something. Because they've been doing a, enough of that. <laughs> right. Right. But I think so I think here they might just say, well, we'll give we're not going to we're going to just really narrow the circumstances in which deference to an agency is appropriate. And that would functionally be basically the same as overruling Chevron. And that is like that would, again, be another real blow to agencies' ability to do important work, to kind of, you know, keep us all safe and healthy and all the many, many things that agencies do. Not that they're perfect. Like, no one thinks they're perfect. But, you know, they're an important part of our collective lives. And the court's kind of unremitting hostility to agencies and agency power, I think, is just a really important theme of this court and a really important one that will have practical consequences for all of us. Any other big case in the next term we should be looking out for? Well, there's Rahimi, the court just granted. So a, a, a gun case post-Bruin. So one of the big cases last term, obviously, probably the other hugely important case in addition to Dobbs was uh, Bruin, the case basically you know striking down New York's uh, permitting regime for carrying weapons around and also announcing a standard for evaluating gun laws that is very, very protective of gun ownership and very skeptical of gun regulations. Um, and this is a case involving a provision of federal law that makes it a felony for someone under a domestic violence order of protection to possess a firearm. And this is a pretty commonly used federal statute. Um, and the Fifth Circuit struck that statute down uh, as inconsistent with the standard the court set down in Bruin, and the court just agreed to take it up. So we're going to, I think, see very quickly whether the court is you know, going to try to carve out an exception to Bruin and is not going to be willing to basically say, we can't disarm abusers, um, which does feel like a radical, radical position. And when I, I wonder whether John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh will find some way around or whether they will just basically say we meant what we said in Bruin and almost all gun laws are presumptively unconstitutional because that's basically what the test in Bruin has reduced to. Um, and that is, I think, a very, very alarming uh, case. I can keep talking to you, but I'm not going to I'm not going to force you to suffer through this. Kate Shaw, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Preet.
My conversation with Kate Shaw continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we speak about Moore v. Harper, the court's decision rejecting the independent state legislature theory. To the extent that people had hoped that Moore versus Harper would, you know, decisively reject this theory and kind of put it to rest for all time such that it was not going to arise in the context of, say, the 2024 election, I don't think that happened. The annual membership is now 40% off for the first year. To sign up, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Kate Shaw. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.